These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Bad things happen because the gods are angry. This has been the generally accepted wisdom since at least the dawn of writing, and was likely believed even before that. Indeed, while the details of the theology have changed over the millennium, God's anger is still believed by large portions of humanity today to be the root cause of unfortunate large-scale events in the world. Exploring the problem of evil in depth has already been the topic of two episodes on the show thus far, The Oldest Debates and The Poem of the Righteous Sufferer. But identifying the cause of bad things only gets you so far. And the question arises, what can I, personally, do to ensure the fertility of my land and ward off terrible storms in the face of the gods' wrath? Today, we're going to look at the wrath of the gods and how to ward it off with the famous Hittite myth of the vanishing gods. First, a little programming note. If you missed the bonus episode from the end of August, The Slaying of Iluyanka, I recommend that you give that a listen. Not just because I think that was a pretty good show, but also because it mostly slots into this Hittite context and was actually originally going to be posted right about now. Because I had the opportunity to do a special episode in conjunction with some other YouTubers, I posted it early, but it has a good bit of context on Hittite religious ideas if you're interested. But you don't have to. This episode and that one cover mostly separate myths. Anyway, the point is that today we're looking at a story that isn't just a story. The core of the vanishing god myth is wrapped inextricably from a particular ritual context. The story itself is pretty simple. We start with a god. There are a few different gods that we could be looking at from story to story, and this god is angry. In his or her anger, he storms off and upsets the natural order in his absence. A great hunt is called by the other gods to find the missing god, and he or she is finally found, returned to civilization, and soothed. In this apparent simplicity, there is quite a lot we can learn about Hittite religion and culture. Before our story even begins, the first thing to note is that the Hittites were passionate collectors of many different gods, and just as they refused to syncretize gods together, so too did they refuse to judge among the different versions of stories. Thankfully, unlike the slaying of Ilyanka, the differences between versions in this myth are relatively minor, and for the most part, the biggest change between different versions is which god becomes angry and storms off. For this episode, we will mostly be referring to Telepinu. The Telepinu version of the myth is the one that survives in the most and best preserved fragments. He was an agricultural god inherited from the Hattians, whose name means Great Sun, indicating that one of his main roles in life was to be the son of the Great Storm God. He may have been a storm god himself in some circumstances, and exactly which of the many storm gods he is supposed to be descended from seems to change in different contexts. But honestly, the god himself isn't really that important here, since we have versions for a variety of storm gods as well as a sun goddess, indicating that this wasn't 
a ritual uniquely tied to Lipanu himself. Rather, whatever god or goddess was identified by the oracles as the cause of any given disaster would be supplicated through the ritual of the vanishing god myth. But we'll be getting to all of that. Our tale begins quite suddenly, though in no fragment do we have the original beginning. The closest we can get is about 20 lines into it, and by now Tilipanu is already quite stirred up. Tilipanu flew into a rage and shouted, Let there be no intimidating language! And in his agitation, he put his right shoe on his left foot, his left shoe on his right foot, and he stormed out. We don't know why he's upset. It's possible that the preceding lines explained the source of his anger. But it's just as possible that no part of the myth, as written, ever explains the reason for the anger. After all, we have many fragments of this tale from many gods, and nowhere do any of them ever hint at the reasons the gods are offended. Some people think that no reason is given because the gods have the right to be completely inscrutable. They can be upset for no reason at all, or for no reason comprehensible to mortals. Theologically, this is a position held by much of the Near East at the time, and may either represent a borrowing from Mesopotamian traditions like the Poem of the Righteous Sufferer, or just a similar general outlook among humans with not too dissimilar pressures in life. However, another possibility is that the source of the god's anger goes unrecorded in writing because of the ritual context of this myth. One of the most interesting things about the Hittites is that they were particularly fond of recording things surrounding rituals. While 97% of the Mesopotamian cuneiform record, the number of ancient documents that survives to our time, is given over to legal contracts, business documents, and receipts, perhaps as much as 60% of all documents recovered from the Hittite capital, Hattusha, are relating to the practice and management of their many, many festivals and religious rituals. Now, it might be a mistake to think from this that the Hittites were more fond of festivals than any other culture, but the fact that they wrote down far more of their festivals means that we have a somewhat different window on these people than we do any other ancient culture. The upshot as it relates to our tale today is that the vanishing god myth exists in a ritual context. Unlike the tale of Ilyanka, which occurred each spring at the Peruli festival and discussed events relating to the transition of winter to spring, and unlike the main festival for the god Telepinu, which though occurring only every ninth year would span for weeks and involve a number of major cities in a vast region-wide parade, the ritual associated with the vanishing god had no set time of year to be performed that we can determine. Instead, your local priest would organize a vanishing god ceremony whenever there was concern that the god had, in fact, vanished. Perhaps a great storm had blown down the crops shortly before harvest. Perhaps winter conditions had continued into March and April. Perhaps the region had recorded an unusually high number of stillbirths. Really, there was an almost endless number of disasters that could befall a late Bronze Age community, and if there were no more obvious explanation, then it must surely be divine wrath. 
a responsible priest would already be consulting the various oracles and auguries available to him, from observing the flight of birds to watching how a drop of oil behaved in a bowl of water. And if the need was great or a wealthy local benefactor paid for it, a sheep could be cut open to have its liver red. From this, the priest can determine who the angry god was, and with this plus his knowledge of local conditions, he can perhaps venture a guess as to why the god is angry. Whatever this reason is will be filled in during the prayers the priest gives in association with this ritual, or perhaps if the myth will be performed on stage, not unlike a modern Christmas nativity pageant but with a very different message, then the actors will play out the particular offense the god took. Fundamentally, however, it doesn't really matter why the god is upset, which is why any thought of finding root causes is simply absent from the entire tale. The god could be mad for any reason or none. Our concern in this ritual is what comes next, and what comes next is a bad time for all. Mist seized the windows, smoke seized the house. In the fireplace, the logs were stifled. At the altars, the gods were stifled. In the sheep pen, the sheep were stifled. In the cattle barn, the cattle were stifled. The mother sheep rejected her lamb. The cow rejected her calf. Telepino too went away and removed grain, animal fertility, luxuriance, growth, and abundance to the steppe, to the meadow. Telepanu, too, went into the moor and blended with the moor. Over him the Halenzu weed grew. Therefore barley and wheat no longer ripen. Cattle, sheep, and humans no longer become pregnant. And those already pregnant cannot give birth. The mountains and the trees dried up, so that the shoots do not come forth. The pastures and the springs dried up, so that famine broke out in the land. Humans or gods are dying of hunger. The great sun god made a feast and invited the thousand gods. They ate, but couldn't get enough. They drank, but couldn't quench their thirst. The natural order from top to bottom is upset by the gods' departure. Some translations have Telepanu taking the natural order in his anger, while in others his absence simply causes it, as knocking over a cup causes the water to spill out. Telepanu's place is within the home, either literally inhabiting his house in the temple or metaphorically within the house of civilization. And in his fury, he has abandoned that civilization and buried himself in the wilderness like an unwanted corpse, with weeds growing over him. The very smallest of things go wrong, with the literally tiny particles of mist and smoke invading civilization, clogging the air, dampening the fires, blinding sight, bringing confusion. In the human realm, fertility is lost, from the lowest plants to humans themselves, and even the already pregnant can't give birth, which I pity all those poor ladies. In the heavenly realm, the gods themselves suffer, blocked from enjoying offerings or sending messages to the earth. Truly a disaster for the entire universe. At first, even the gods don't know why this has happened, sitting at the most miserable feast, all glum and as baffled as the human priest must be. They ask each other what could have caused this when the storm god remembered his son Telepanu, not quite father of the year now, is he, exclaiming, 
My son Telepanu is not here. He became enraged and removed everything good. And with this, the mystery is solved, but there is still work to be done. The great and small gods begin to search for Telepanu. The sun god sent the swift eagle. Go search the high mountains. Search the deep valleys. Search the blue deep. The eagle went, but didn't find him. But he brought back a message to the sun god. I couldn't find Telepanu, the noble god. The storm god said to Hanahana, How shall we act? We're going to die of hunger. Hanahana said to the storm god, Do something, storm god. Go search for Telepanu yourself. Hanahana is the great mother goddess, and in some accounts the mother of many or all the gods themselves. Though she lacked the same formal position of the patron gods of the Hittite kings, the sun and storm deities, Hanahana's power over fertility and motherhood made her important in the daily life of the Hittite people, and her word here is much like the chiding rebuke of an honored mother and one assumes that the lack of fertility in the world at this moment would have her particularly irritated. Following the great mother goddess, the storm god began to search for Telepanu. In his city, the storm god grasps the city gate, but he can't manage to open it. Instead, the storm god broke his hammer and his chisel. He wrapped himself up in his garment and sat down in a huff. The storm god, the greatest and mightiest, is locked within his own city. And when his own gate defeats him, he wraps himself up in his own garment and sits down to pout like a frustrated child. This may well have been played for laughs. The large, bearded actor, wrapped up in the dignity of the role, may have shattered that dignity to amuse the audience. After all, the image we began with of Telepano's shoes getting mixed up and storming out of the house could also have been a humorous moment built into the proceedings, which, remember, would likely have played out to an audience as part of a ritual. It keeps the people engaged and builds pathos for the gods. But it also reveals something incredibly important about the Hittite gods. If you think back to the slaying of Ilyanka, there too we saw a storm god, great and mighty, who was unable to triumph in a straight fight against his enemies. Now, in a second major legend, the storm god is unable to accomplish what he sets out to do. There is a remarkable amount of weakness in the Hittite gods, not just compared to the omnipotent Abrahamic god that we're used to in modern times, but even compared to the Greek and Sumerian gods who live nearby. The Hittite gods need help. They need a lot of help. And as we saw in the Ilyanka myth, and as we will see soon, they need help in the rituals surrounding the vanishing god as well. The Mesopotamian gods weren't like this. They didn't need humanity. They created humanity to be essentially robot slaves, and this conception of the Sumerian meaning of life informs a great deal about the Mesopotamian character. Although we have and will continue to see quite a lot that the Anatolians adopt from Mesopotamia, this is a core difference in their character that visibly affects their religion, and more subtly tells us about how they saw their place in the world. A Hittite was much closer to the level of the gods than a Sumerian, Akkadian, or Babylonian ever was, and far more was required of him religiously. 
Though there was never any doubt who was the master and who was the servant, the need for mortals, especially priests and kings, to maintain the natural order seems to have made a difference in the psychology of the common Anatolian person, as reflected in the differences in the stories they told. In modern psychology, this is what's termed a more internal locus of control. In other words, the average Hittite may have believed that more of the world was within his power to influence, while the average Babylonian appears to have been almost completely fatalistic, with essentially zero influence in the wider world around him. It would be very easy to take this one piece of psychological data and let it carry us way too far, but at the very least we can see in the seriousness of the nearly endless rituals and celebrations of the gods that the centrality of human participation in the world order was very well established among the Anatolians. But we risk getting ahead of ourselves here. The next section in its own way reinforces this. Hanahana sent a bee. Go search for Telepanu, the storm god said to Hanahana. Since the great and small gods have been searching for him, but haven't found him, will this bee find him? His wings are small, and he himself is small, and he's all by himself. Now, in the primary version of the tale, the matter of the bee is cut off here, the text too badly damaged to read. But in other tablets, we find that the bee is charged quite specifically by the mother goddess. You, O oh bee, should look for Telepanu, and when you find him, sting him on his hands and feet, make him stand up, take wax and wipe off his eyes and his hand, purify him and bring him back to me. Hanahana then said to the storm god, Desist, it will go find him. The bee went. It began to search for Telepanum. The bee searched the high mountains. It searched the deep valleys. It searched the blue deep. The honey was exhausted in its interior. The bee was exhausted in its search. But it finally found him, in a meadow in the town of Lesina, in a forest. Now, the town of Lizina is near-ish where this particular fragment was found, but it's expected that perhaps different localities would place the god in different meadows near wherever the ritual and festival is taking place. The bee, having found the god, stung him on his hands and feet so that he woke up. This seems like not a great idea, and indeed, Telepanu woke up, and he said, I was both angry and sleeping. Why did y'all arouse me when I was sleeping? Why did you make me talk when I was sulking? Telepanu became even more angry. He ruined the spring. He emptied the rivers and brooks. He frightened the animals and made them flee. He flooded the riverbanks. He knocked down cities. He knocked down houses. He destroyed people. He destroyed cattle and sheep. Yep, poor idea. The passive destruction wrought by the god's disappearance has become an active destruction, thanks to the perhaps poorly thought-out interventions of other gods. Or perhaps we should just blame the bee. 
Either way, he brings both drought and flood, which seems contradictory, but we actually get a similar condition in Texas from time to time. In the midst of an extended drought, the land itself hardens and dries up, and so when we finally do get a good storm, the valleys are especially prone to flash flooding because the ground has become too hard packed to absorb the water quick enough. Anyway, one can easily imagine this being either a fun, dramatic part of the story as the actors or priest really plays up the excitement of active disasters, or a terribly quiet and somber part as people remember the actual devastation that may have hit their town recently. It's another facet of how this myth and its ritual are fundamentally inseparable. The gods conferred among each other. Telepanu has become angry. How shall we act? How shall we act? Summon a human being and let him lost text. Let the eagle lost text. Let him bring lost text. Things get pretty rough at this point. Maybe an eagle has brought a human priest to help with the coming ritual, possibly taking place atop a particular mountain, in one version, Mount Amuna, but it isn't really clear in any of the translations what happens here. Why exactly the gods require a human to be involved is either missing or so obvious that it never gets explained. Soon enough, however, the various fragments pick back up with the actual ritual. The gods must have decided that they know how to get Telepanu to calm down, and each step in the myth would be accompanied by actual actions in the real world, following along almost like a magic spell. All that we have is the invocation called out, presumably by the priest, both in the story and in the actual ritual, but it's easy enough to imagine what's occurring before the statue of the god as these words are spoken. O Telepanu, here lies sweet and soothing cedar essence. Let what is stifled in your heart be set right again. Here I have upthrusting sap to purify thee. Let it invigorate thy heart and soul, O Telepanu. Let the king turn in favor. Here lies chaff. Let the heart and the soul be segregated like this. Here lies an ear of grain. Let it attract his heart and soul. Here lies sesame. Let his heart and soul be comforted by it. Here lies some figs. Just as figs are sweet, even so let Telepanu's heart and soul become sweet. Just as the olive holds oil within it, just as the grape holds wine within it, so may you too, Telepanu, hold in your heart and soul good feelings towards the king. Note here that in some versions, the king himself is involved, or possibly a king's representative. After all, the king is the physical embodiment of his kingdom, and if the gods are upset at the country, they're upset at its leader. If they're upset at the leader, they're upset at the country. The ritual continues, and indeed has slight variations in the different versions, but the general sense of it is the same throughout. Here lies wax for you. Drive out Telepanu's anger, wrath, sin, and sullenness out from your presence. Here lies wheat for you. Just as this wheat is pure, let Telepanu's heart and soul become pure again in the same way. Here lies malt and beer bread for you. Just as malt and beer bread blend in essence so that their soul and heart become one, so may Telepanu be the same. 
They get an angry person drunk with the beer of the gods, and his anger vanishes from him. They get a timid man drunk, and his timidity vanishes from him. Let the malt and the beer bread get you drunk, Telepanu, in the same way, and for your wrath, let it vanish. Now this all, this is straight up magic. None of it is terribly different from the sorts of magic practiced all over the world at any point in history. Even today, there are a number of people, from Wiccans to Chaos Wizards to even more esoteric beliefs, who continue to practice essentially this. In addition, of course, to the parts of the world where ancient magical traditions are far less ancient than here in the science-dominated West. I've been saying ritual, and many of us think of essentially useless or primarily psychological benefits when we think of ritual. And whenever I say magic, even a lot of us who are paying attention sort of tune out a bit. Honestly, it happens to me sometimes, and I have to remind myself that magic here isn't some Harry Potter handwave nonsense. Every single person in the crowd would have known that this magical procedure was going to work, or at least the mechanism of action was at least well understood, so if it didn't work, then we sort of know why. The idea of extracting active ingredients from a sample, even when some early medical procedures indicate that this was being done in practice, was completely unknown. In magic, Things work through analogy, substitution, and symbolic correspondence, as we see quite explicitly here. The priest gives Tlipanu cedar oil because it's sweet. This is at once a gift, because who doesn't like gift? And it is symbolic. By taking the sweet oil, perhaps his soul will sweeten magically. It's similar with the figs, the grapes, the wheat. These are all good things to get as gifts for sure, and they're definitely offerings. But they also all clearly represent, and through that representation, will cause his soul to get sweet and calm and pleasant. Then there are more complicated metaphors, such as the chaff, the undesirable part of wheat, representing a separation of good from bad, just as the priest desired the good and bad thoughts of the god to be separated apart. Similarly, the malt and the beer bread, likely a liquid and solid version of basically the same food, one is a slightly alcoholic and very high-calorie drink, and the other as a very hearty and very solid bread loaf, represent and magically cause the coming together of two similar things. Perhaps the god's soul is meant to come into harmony with the worshippers. I'm honestly not completely clear how that last part works. In any case, with the ritual to the god completed, we hear again from Telepanu, who we have just with great effort and expense tried to soothe. But Telepanu arrives in fury. Lightning flashed. It thundered while the dark earth was in turmoil. Enter now Kamrusepa, goddess of healing, flying in from atop an eagle to assist the human priest. It's time for the big magics to come out now, a serious display to impress the onlookers and hopefully settle the wayward god for good. Kamrusepa saw him and moved for himself with the eagle's wing. She stopped it, the anger. She stopped it, the wrath. She stopped sin. She stopped sullenness. Kamrusepa says to the gods, 
Go, O gods. Now tend the sun god's sheep for Hapantali, and cut out twelve rams, so I may treat Telepanu's Karas grains. I have taken for myself a basket with a thousand small holes. Upon it I have poured Karas grains, the rams of Kamrusepa. And I have made a burning back and forth over Telepanu, on one side and on the other. And I have taken from Telepanu, from his body, his evil. I have taken his sin. I have taken his anger. I have taken his wrath. I have taken his pike. I have taken his sullenness. Telepanu is angry. His soul and his essence were stifled like burning brushwood. And just as they burned these sticks of brushwood, may the anger, wrath, sin, and sullenness of Telepanu likewise burn up. And just as malt is sterile, so that they don't carry it to the field and use it as seed, as they don't make it into bread and deposit it into the seal-house, so may the anger, wrath, sin, and sullenness of Telepanu likewise become sterile. Telepanu is angry. His soul and heart are a burning fire. And just as this fire is extinguished, so may his anger, wrath, and sullenness likewise be extinguished. Telepanu, let anger go. Let wrath go. Let sullenness go. And just as the water in a drain pipe doesn't flow backwards, so may the anger, wrath, and sullenness of Telepanu likewise not come back. This is some big magic here. A sacrifice and a bunch of metaphor. Doing things in the world so that a related action can take place in Telepanu's soul. Remember that all the people are wishing with all their hearts that the wrath of the god can be alleviated, and as each ritual action occurs, they're adding their will to the ritual, perhaps even calling out some sort of chorus to follow along. This would have been an extremely emotional event for many, as the hardships that spurred this ritual would still be fresh in the mind. With the main part of the ritual complete, the gods are sitting in the place of convocation under a hawthorn tree. Something isn't completely clear what is going on under this tree, but most important is that all the gods are sitting. Papaya, Istustaya, the fate goddesses, the mother goddess, the grain goddess, Miantizipa, Miatanzipa, the tutelary deity, Hapantali, and others. Even Telipanu is there, apparently now tamed enough to sit in the company of the great gods under a tree. The healer goddess Kamrusepa announces before this august crowd, I have treated the gods under the hawthorn for this long years. I have purified him. I have taken evil from Telepanu's body. I have taken his anger. I have taken his wrath. I have taken his sin. I have taken sullenness. I have taken the evil tongue. I have taken the evil path. Some sort of ritual then begins under the hawthorn tree, and much of it is very fragmentary. And curiously enough, it seems to involve many or all the gods together, and may have involved all the spectators to the ritual as well. Of the things we can recover decently well, there is... The ox passes under you, and you pull its lock of hair. The sheep passes under you, and you pull its tuft of wool. Pull the anger, wrath, sin, and sullenness from Telepanu too. And the storm god comes, full of anger, and the man of the storm god stops him. The bowl comes, and the wooden something stops it. 
In addition, may my mortal words likewise stop Telepinu's anger, wrath, and sullenness. And with the end of the ritual, there is yet another ritual, perhaps one of the most important ones. This one involves traveling around the city, and as places are called out, it seems that something may have been placed along the road, perhaps sweet fruits or honey, in order to tempt the anger now finally expelled physically from Telepinu's heart down a prearranged path. May Telepinu's anger, wrath, sin, and sullenness depart. May the house release it. May the middle path release it. May the window release it. May the hinge release it. May the middle courtyard release it. May the city gate release it. May the gate complex release it. May the king's road release it. May it not go into the fruitful field, garden, or forest. May it go the root of the sun goddess, of the dark earth. After all, we can't have that anger getting out into the wild. Look at the problems it has already caused. The gatekeeper opened the seven doors. He drew back the seven bars. Down in the dark earth stand bronze vats. Their lids are of lead. Their latches are of iron. That which goes into them doesn't come back up again. It perishes therein. So may they seize Telepinu's anger, wrath, sin, and sullenness, and may they not come back here. And presumably a massive lead pot fashioned just for this purpose would be slammed shut to conclude the ritual. The horrible, destructive anger has been magically expelled and physically trapped, and as the tale ends, the world is safe yet again. Telepinu came back home to his house and took account of his land. The mist released from the windows, the smoke released the house. The altars were in harmony again with the gods. The fireplace released the log, in the sheepfold he released the sheep, in the cattle barn he released the cattle. Then the mother looked after her child, and the sheep looked after her lamb, and the cow looked after her calf. And Telepinu too looked after the king and queen, and took account of them in respect to life, vigor, and longevity. Telepinu took account of the king. Before Telepinu there stands an Ian tree. From the Ian is suspended a hunting bag, made from the skin of a sheep. In the bag lies sheep fat. In it lie symbols of animal fecundity and wine. In it lie symbols of cattle and sheep. In it lie longevity and progeny. The story is over, but clearly the festival is not. At the end of it all, with our happy ending secured, it's necessary to thank the gods with the sacrifice of a sheep. Each part of the sheep is ritually drawn out, and the lingering magic of the festival attaches different parts of the animal to different blessings, now that the happy gods are pleased to bestow upon the world longevity, plenty, fertility, and so forth. I'm not sure that we have the actual ending of any of the fragments. The nature of clay tablets is that the tops and bottoms are most likely to wear away, but this gets us reasonably close to the end of our tale, and of our ritual. And hopefully, it gets us into the minds of the Hittites a little bit better than just looking at the history of kings and conquest does. One of the things that has really struck me as I research the earliest peoples of the Middle East is that they have, in many ways, a very different mindset than do I. 
and the more I learn, the more I think that a large amount of that difference is explained by just how incredibly, almost unimaginably hard their lives were on a daily basis. I've had other occasions on this show to talk about this, but nearly all of these people are subsistence farmers, one bad harvest away from a slow, starving death. A bad storm can kill their family. A hard winter can kill their family. A dry summer can kill their family. What we might consider a mild illness can kill their family. The seemingly endless wars and raids can kill their family. The list goes on, and while all these things can be dangerous today, we really don't think about how terrible they can be with, without all our modern conveniences to protect us from them. Just today, I ate crackers from the Philippines, sunflower seeds from China, and cookies from the USA. That was just my snacks, things I irresponsibly add on to my actual meals. Who even knows how many parts of the world those come from? And as I write this, it's still the rough part of the year 2020, when it seems half the world is shut down, but somehow, through the miracle of supply chains to which I contribute essentially nothing, I can live a life of unimaginable plenty, feasting at least as well, if not better than, those gods under that hawthorn tree there. We can't understand the past if we can't understand the conditions under which they live. Next week, we're going to return to the historical narrative, Armed with this understanding of the gods, of humans' place in the world, of the anxiety of ancient poverty, and we'll finish out the life and reign of a man who would not have believed us if we called him poor. Hattusili will go out in style, surpassing in his own way Sargon the Great, looting major cities, and finally perishing in a death worthy of a modern soap opera. So join us next week as the great king redraws the political map of the Near East and sets the stage for the great power drama of the late Bronze Age. Thank you for listening.